Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Has President Trump had his Nixonian moment? To weigh in, I want to bring in Eli Lake, a Bloomberg View columnist uh, who has written extensively about the latest dramas in the President uh, Trump administration. Uh, Eli, first take. I know a lot of people have compared what President Trump just did with James Comey, uh, firing him as the FBI director, to some of the uh, developments under uh, former President Nixon, who was impeached. How is this similar and how is this different? Well, it's similar in that James Comey was the head of the bureau and was uh, that was conducting an investigation into the president, as Archibald Cox was a special prosecutor looking into Watergate. But that's really where the similarities end. Um, first of all, in Watergate, we always knew what the crime was. Uh, it was a third-rate break-in, uh, followed by a series of cover-ups and lying. In the case of of Russiagate, for lack of a better word, we're not even sure what the underlying crime is at this point. Uh, and it looks like there's a cover-up, but it's like a cover-up without a crime. And second of all, one of the things that Nixon did and why the Watergate break-in was so troubling was that he was using, because he used former CIA officers and uh, people involved with Cuba uh, operations, for that break-in as part of a kind of dirty tricks uh, group in, uh, that, that did things on behalf of the, of the White House. So he was using the power of the surveillance state against his political opposition. You could argue that with the leak um, of Flynn's conversations with Kislyak and a couple other things like that, the power of the surveillance state was, has been used against Trump uh, to weaponize the allegations about Russia. Um, so that's another important distinction. Um, but the, the one thing that's very similar is that, you know, in some ways, uh, what happened with Nixon and what happened with Trump is that these were both sort of violating traditional political norms. I had written a column that said Comey was the most powerful man in Washington because I couldn't imagine after he announced an ongoing counterintelligence probe into uh, the Trump campaign in Russia that the president would fire him. I thought it would be politically suicidal. Look what I know. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, we haven't seen the full fallout, but I think that uh, that this is the question. You know, if it is not political suicide, if if it was inaccurate to say that this is such a, a dire political move that uh, President Trump would not embark upon it, what does this mean for the independence of uh, the law enforcement branch, especially at a time when AG Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, has said that he would recuse himself? You know, as as Senator uh, Schumer was saying, he would recuse himself from the Russia probe. Uh, and then to make a move like this and recommend that James Comey be fired as FBI director. I mean, does this concern you? I don't think we're there yet. Uh, the acting FBI director is a guy named Andrew McCabe. His wife received uh, a significant amount of campaign contributions from Terry McAuliffe, the current Democratic governor of Virginia and longtime Clinton associate and head of the DNC. Um, that would suggest to me that... Um, you know, that you're that first of all, the Russia probe isn't going away. And second of all, the FBI will continue to, you know, do its investigations. And, and finally, I mean, I think another big difference on Watergate is that, you know, 
you could you could you could be critical of elements of Archibald Cox, but really there is a substantive case against Jim Comey that Democrats have made and Republicans have made that is inarguable, I think. So um, in that respect, I mean, there was cause in the case of Comey, um, most recently that he misled Congress last week when he testified uh, about Huma Abedin and Anthony Weiner's uh, computer. Right. Um, so in that respect, you know, you could say it's a long time coming. It's just, you know, he was investigating Trump or not Trump, but I guess he was in Trump said he was assured he was not under investigation, well, but he was certainly investigating his associates. Which, which, by the way, I mean, Eli, we would be remiss if we didn't point out how odd it was uh, for President Trump to even flick at the uh, investigation in his letter uh, to, co- to, to to former FBI Director James Comey. Now, I mean, I don't. What's so strange about that is, is that if assuming it's true, why didn't Comey say that when he announced the investigation? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of. Things. I just don't understand it. Well, I, one thing I wanted to get back to uh, with the mm-hmm. FBI acting director McCabe uh, being a respected bureau uh, employee. First of all, is he likely to be the successor, the permanent successor to uh, James Comey? And also, not a, chance. not a chance. Okay, why? Because I think I've heard that they want to get rid of McCabe as well, and that they are looking to. I mean, Trump himself said he's going to nominate somebody new. So he's not. So McCabe is going to be the acting director. But keep in mind, there's an active investigation. The active investigation continues. McCabe is going to be the acting director, and we can expect, I would imagine, a long political fight over the nomination of the next FBI director. It's going to consume Washington. It's got to pass the smell test for Senate Republicans who distance themselves from the decision to fire Comey, and it's got to pass the smell test. From Democrats who are really out for blood at this point and are comparing this to the Saturday Night Massacre under Richard Nixon. So in the meantime, couldn't President Trump ostensibly fire acting FBI Director McCabe uh, if he didn't want him to be the one in charge? He could. I don't know if he will. I don't know if it would be politically wise. <laughs> You're like, I can't make any more statements about political suicide. To fire so. Right. So... Going forward, what do you think is the most important thing for us to keep uh, keep track of to sort of get a real sense of, of what's going to happen here? Well, I would look for some sort of statement and reporting. I'm trying to get this myself. Is what is the status at this point of the counterintelligence probe into Trump and uh, the Trump campaign in Russia? Uh, I would look at um, what the dynamics will look like for a for for the nomination fight for the new FBI director. And while we just have now new information that Mitch McConnell said there won't be a special prosecutor. Um, I do think it makes political sense at this point to have some sort of bipartisan special commission or something along those lines, maybe, um, I mean, a, a kind of special select committee, right. but something that will just allow for our country to have a respected group, bipartisan, that will just sort of present at a certain point, right. here are the facts about the election we can all agree on, and let's get it behind us. Right. That's Eli Lake, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. I could speak with you all morning. Eli Lake is a Bloomberg View columnist talking about Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey.
Well, a lot of times, there, whenever there's a blip in the market, people point their finger at this abyss called risk parity. They say risk parity funds are deleveraging or risk parity funds are rotating out of something. Uh, to sort of clarify what actually is going on, I want to bring in Rob Croce. He is the uh, a senior portfolio manager at Salient Partners in Houston, Texas. Uh, Salient oversees uh, about $14 billion in assets. So, Rob, I want to just start with talking about uh, why risk parity funds are blamed for turmoil in the markets and whether you have seen any instances of this. Sure. Well, we've certainly seen instances of them being blamed. We haven't seen any instances where they really did exacerbate uh, market drawdowns. Um, Risk parity is something that a lot of people haven't taken the time to try to understand, and therefore it's easy to blame it and and have it be credible. So, so help us understand it. What is risk parity? Sure, risk parity is an asset allocation strategy uh, that tries to take risk in asset classes that are really different from each other. So, rather than having sixty percent stocks and forty percent bonds, it tries to take risk spread pretty equally across stocks, bonds, credits, uh, and sovereign debt. So, you know, that 60-40 portfolio of 60% stocks, 40% bonds that the average investor holds in their portfolio, that is like 90% equity risk. And so, you know, the next time stocks draw down 50%, it's very clear what's going to happen to that portfolio. So uh, the idea is to sort of remove correlation to a particular move up in one direction or, or down in another direction. Uh, I do have to wonder, though, what has the track record been like? Have these uh, has you have your risk parity funds truly been uncorrelated to some of the major markets? Sure. So anytime one market moves a lot, you're going to be correlated to it. But at the same time, if you look over the long run, our beta to stocks, our beta to bonds, our beta to to credit, our beta to to sovereign debt is exactly what it should be. We're getting exactly a quarter of our risk historically from each of those asset classes. And that's the goal. We don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. So what have returns been like? Returns have been good. I mean, we're up 4% or so year to date in in our mutual fund version of risk parity. Um, they're exactly what you would expect from from a balanced portfolio that allocates to all the asset classes. We so trade. what has institutional interest been like for these types of funds? Institutional interest continues to uh, increase in risk parity strategies. What we're seeing is institutions recognizing that to make that 7% bogey that they need to make, they need to do something different. They can't afford to double down on stocks. We all know that stocks are, are fully priced right now. Bonds are fully priced right now. So you know that what they've been doing is unlikely to get them 7% on a go-forward basis. So what should they do? Should they double down on stocks or double down on private equity? Or do, should they do something a little bit different from that? And so they've been allocating to what we see called risk mitigating asset classes or equity risk mitigation. And so that doesn't mean, usually when I hear equity risk mitigation, I think lower return. But that's not what this is. This is actually seeking return, but doing it in markets that aren't stocks. So uh, walk me through a meeting that you would have with an institutional investor. I'm wondering, what are their biggest questions? Sure. So in general, when you go and talk to an institutional investor about a strategy like this, you know that they're already looking at it. And so it's really answering questions about what makes our implementation different. In general, the answer is that we try to have a more adaptive portfolio. So we have an overlay. We we think risk parity is a good starting place, but we don't think it's where you end. We think that you start from there and then you apply some common sense approach to tilting the portfolio based on market sentiment. 
And so we explained that approach uh, to to potential allocators. So how, do you do that through algorithms or do you do that w- through a human being looking at the market and saying, you know, we should probably do this? Algorithms is a scary word, but it's not nearly as scary as that thing where I th- we go with the human being, you know, so <laughs> computers less scary than humans. Actually, I kind of behaviorally, behaviorally is, is, is for sure right. And so, you know, it's it's systematic, um, but it's not a it's not some crazy black box. We use momentum. Uh, momentum gives us an edge. Over time, momentum tells us which asset classes are in favor right now and which asset classes are, are for sure out of favor right now. And they help us step out of the way of stuff that's not working. So uh, do you end up trading quite a bit in these funds? I mean, is the turnover pretty pretty high? Sure. Anytime you're trading futures, t- turnover is high relative to a sort of buy and hold equity portfolio. But yeah, turnover is high. How do you get diversity uh, with a model when the implementation can be somewhat challenging. I mean, you talk about specific corporate securities, for example, that may not trade as frequently as, say, you know, futures or other contracts. So I just wonder, theoretical models, do they ever not translate because of sort of the liquidity concerns? For sure. When you're, when you're building a portfolio like this, liquidity is paramount. Um, and so the, the credit that we trade is a derivative contract. It's an index. It's a swap on an index. Uh, so it, it's something that is totally liquid in, by the billions. Uh, so we we put liquidity first when you're building a portfolio like this uh, and, and you want to be adaptive. Everything you're trading has to be very liquid. So uh, going back to sort of how we began with the idea that whenever there's a blip in the market, people point their fingers at risk parity funds as having to deleverage or uh, getting withdrawals. Have you seen anything from even, from your competitors even that have made you think, well, in the hands of the wrong person, this could be a dangerous strategy? I wish I could throw my competitors under the bus here, but I really can't. <laughs> All right. The, the The truth is that when when you're a professional portfolio manager and you're trading a lot, number one, you have to manage market impact costs and you have to manage trading costs. And you know the the type of trading that's been sort of assumed of risk parity managers during these these periods is implausible from a trading cost perspective. And so I, I'm 100% confident that risk parity managers aren't adding insult to injury when, when markets are drawing down right now. Um, what what I think is much scarier is discretionary managers throwing in the towel or getting getting uh, fearful and selling stocks. Uh, I think that that's something much more likely to happen in a discretionary context with sort of an old school equity manager than it is a systematic risk parity manager. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge for the rest of the year for your uh, risk parity funds? Fortunately, the, the funds don't ask me that. You know, uh, it, we very much can't tell the future. So we think that uh, having a plan and sticking to it is the way to generate performance over time. That said, anytime the market environment changes quickly, uh, it can be challenging for a portfolio that's adapting. So our portfolio today is ideally situated for the market we're in today. As it changes, it will take us a little a little bit of time, a couple of days to reallocate the portfolio for the new environment. And during those periods when when the level of risk changes or correlations change, we can be misallocated for a couple of days. Fortunately, periods where the market is sort of calm and stays in the same state are much more frequent and persistent than these sort of jumpy transitory states. So we think that over time, being adapted to the current environment uh, ends up working much better than 
being scared and sitting on your hands. Thank you so much for joining us. Rob Croce, he is Managing Director of Quantitative Strategies and a Senior Portfolio Manager at Salient Partners in Houston, Texas. Salient Partners oversees about $14 billion. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Well, as Jay Clayton takes the helm of the Securities and Exchange Commission of the U.S., uh, it is important to realize one of his main concerns, as he has outlined uh, on several occasions, is the dearth of IPO, of initial public offerings, uh, in the U.S., talking about how this market has been shrinking. And yet we are getting some signs that this might pick up. And not only is it U.S. companies IPOing here, but European companies deciding to uh, come to the U.S. in order to raise. Equity. Ed Hammond is here with us. He is a deals reporter for Bloomberg News and joins me in the Bloomberg 1130 studio uh, in New York. Ed, can you give us a sense of why AXA and also Pret-a-Manger, do you say Pret-a-Manger? Like, what do you say? How do you say it? Because it's a French word. We just call it Pret. All right, fine. I so think Brits are, Brits are pretty bad when it comes to sort of French or foreign pronunciation anyway, because they tend to be lazy when it comes to foreign languages. Um, so, yeah, we so just... why are they coming here? We just call it Pret. So, I'll, I'll start with Pret. Um... It's obviously huge in the UK. It's this kind of store of the high street, um, very, very popular sandwich shop. I think it, it may be maxed out in terms of what it can do in the UK with growth. Uh, it obviously sees the US as potentially a huge market for it. This whole um, grab and go, as they call it, concept, I think is, is obviously huge here. You have tons of competition, but actually nothing quite like prep, both in terms of the menu and also just the style of the place. Unlike a lot of US sandwich shops that you go into, you know, whether it's your your Jersey Mike's or your Subway, in prep, you don't actually see them making the sandwiches. It's all pre-prepared food. You just literally go in and you kind of grab your baguette or your, you know, your roll out of the fridge, go up to the counter, pay for it and leave. So you don't have that thing of sort of like you do here where you you know you would order something and they actually build it up for you in the store. But why would you need an IPO in order to expand? I mean is it just basically to get some more capital in dollars or is it something else? Yeah, I think it's to get some more capital. I mean look the the private equity owners of this for a while have been um have been looking at for an exit. Uh, I think there was some discussion around whether or not they would sell it. Obviously some of that has been reported in terms of potential buyers. I think an IPO for them is it's an obvious way for them to get, you know, get it out there, obviously exit the business over time. I think this is, is also a reasonably good time to um, take brands like this and particularly sort of uh, consumer brands public. There seems to be deep appetite for it. And they're actually benchmarking it against um, uh, Starbucks, obviously, but also against Shake Shack, which was one of the biggest sort of success stories of the uh, the public markets in recent years. Interesting. So it could be uh, chalked up to a private equity uh, uh, exit strategy as much as anything else. What about Access? It said that it intends to uh, do an initial public offering of its U.S. operations. Why now? Again, I think, you know, there, there is a, a sense that the public markets are reasonably 
robust at the moment. We went through a long period where they were not, where you know, obviously everyone was very panicked and you saw lots of IPOs being pulled. But I think the other thing that's driving this, and we're seeing this across all sectors really, is there is a concern that we have some volatility down the road. And obviously, you know, it, it's not necessarily that we're at the top of the cycle, but there's certainly a sense that, you know, if you are if you are going to do something now is probably a good moment to do it because it's unlikely to get better from here on out, both in terms of the kind of valuations people can expect, but also the appetite in the public markets, also in the M&A markets. So we see a lot of the same trades happening in M&A where not people are necessarily rushing to do deals, but certainly people are keen to execute stuff now because there's a sense that, hey, you know what, in a year, maybe the opportunity is gone. Yeah, well, I'm talking about deals. T-Mobile and Sprint now might be back on. Yeah, so we've we've had this period, obviously, this sort of perda period where... Um, None of the carriers could speak to each other because it was a spectrum auction going on. I think that ended last week. And so now there is this expectation that, look, these guys are going to be back in dialogue. There are any number of combinations that could happen in the space. Timo Sprint obviously was one that has been attempted before uh, unsuccessfully. And, and therefore, there's a sense that, look, hey, maybe now with uh, the expectation that we have a, a looser regulatory environment under Trump, certainly a looser antitrust environment, maybe this could come back. I think the one thing to say on that is this deal was previously kind of um, – was, was toboggan by the government of the day. And it's actually been something that has been a really, really good thing for consumers because you've seen prices come way off by having these two carriers as separate carriers. You've, you've actually seen the consumer benefit hugely. So I think making the argument now that putting them together and going from what you have of like four carriers to three is going to be somehow good for the US consumer is going to be a very, very difficult sell. Right. But I guess that then my question is, do the people who would be approving the deal or not in government care about that? I mean, is that part of the uh, discussion? Because, uh, frankly, the company has cited uh, potential willingness to uh, allow this kind of deal in the U.S. administration currently. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that's something that I think we are seeing a lot of companies. They feel that there is a much more business friendly environment, particularly among the regulators. Um, and I think there's going to, you know, someone is going to try a big deal and it will be a test case. Obviously, under Obama, there was it was a fairly um, tough antitrust environment. We saw lots and lots of deals get blocked, notably all the kind of big health insurers who tried to merge and were, were pulled apart, Staples, Office Depot, similarly. Um, I think there is an expectation it will be slightly easier to get these big deals done, but it's also there's a lot of uncertainty. There's also a lot of jobs in DC that are not filled that would affect these kind of deals. So I think until you see some more of of those jobs filled and therefore some more clarity around exactly how the antitrust environment is going to be, it's going to be difficult for someone to pull the trigger on a huge deal like this, especially one that's already been blocked. Uh, and just going back to the IPOs real quick, do you get a sense that the volume of IPOs will continue to accelerate through the rest of the year? I think barring any sort of shocks to the system, and obviously there is under this administration, there is potential for a large number of shocks to the system. Um, I think we probably will see a, a decent run of IPOs through the rest of the year. There's certainly a lot that we hear in the pipeline, things being talked about. There are also things that people looked at last year, got quite close to doing in some cases and pulled. And I think there will be, an, you know, there is an expectation that those things come back. There's also a ton of, you know, what we call dual track processes out there at the moment where people, you know, private equity owners are exploring a sort of an IPO simultaneous to an and I exit, and it will be interesting to see which of those gets favored. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Ed Hammond is a deals reporter for Bloomberg News, and he joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Pret a manger, Pret a manger. I'm going to be practicing Pret. that. Just Pret, just Pret, just stick with Pret.
Right now, however, I want to take a look at the media world with Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in the Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to start with time. You were telling me offline about a rather interesting moment on the earnings call, the uh, rather the call with analysts after uh, they reported earnings, where Leon Cooperman of Omega got on and had some interesting comments. Tell us about them. Yeah, Time uh, reported earnings this morning, and, and they were uh, below uh, analyst expectations, and the stock was um, uh, very weak. And um, this is a company that has um, been under uh, M&A speculation really for the last several months, and uh, they kind of called off the process uh, last week, and the stock uh, dropped from near $20 a share down to where it is trading today in the 13s range. So Leon Cooperman, a, a large shareholder of uh, Time, Inc., really challenged management on the call to provide a detailed uh, financial uh, strategic um, kind of forecast or plan for the company uh, to show shareholders, mainly himself, including himself, how they would create value going forward that would uh, cause them to uh, you know, kind of turn away from potential deals that might have been in the 18 to $20 range. Again, the stock's in the $13 trading range today. So he really got on the call and challenged and called out management, challenged them to you know, give us some detailed forecast because they walked away from potentially a much higher price than where the stock is trading now. And he said I'm pretty angry, didn't he? Yeah, he, you know, he's basically just saying, listen, you know, here's my recommendation to you. Um, you know, I'm sure he's not happy about uh, the company not getting a deal done at what, again, could have been 18 to $20 a share. Uh, so he's feeling the pain, and he's just saying, listen, guys, because you walked away, you really owe it to your shareholders to come back with some detailed uh, plans about how you intend to uh, – uh, increased value going forward. Right. And they have been trying to sell some of their print products and some of their assets and sort of focus more on the online business. But they've got a lot of competition. And this has sort of been the strategy for others, including ESPN. And we really right. have to talk about ESPN because they just recently fired a whole host of their uh, their personalities, right, in order to shore up profitability. Disney reported earnings after the bell. Disney, of course, is the parent company of uh, ESPN. What did we learn about the progress of ESPN? ESPN's finances and what the path forward is. Well, the company reported, you know, very good earnings beat expectations. Um, you know, in the parks business and the and the film business continue to perform very well. That's uh, you know two big businesses for them. The third business, however, is really what's the focus of investors, and that's the cable network business, uh, specifically the ESPN. And in fact, I think 13 out of the 15 analyst questions on the call were about ESPN. So that's that's clearly the focus of the marketplace. And unfortunately. Uh, ESPN, like uh, most cable networks, continues to lose subscribers as uh, consumers cut the cord and maybe go for skinny bundles or maybe just get their content uh, from the internet directly. So, uh, you know, so over the last uh, five or six years, ESPN's lost almost 10 million subscribers. Um, and that's really a, a challenge for them because they have a very high fixed cost base. And the fixed costs are all the rights fees they pay to the NFL and the NBA and, uh, you know, for basketball and football and so on. And uh, yet, um, you know, if they're losing subscribers, that means their advertising revenue is going to be under pressure. That means their affiliate fee revenue is going to be under pressure, and that really puts uh, – when you have a fixed cost like that, that really cramps your margins, and that's what investors are concerned about. Yeah, so what's, what are they saying as far as going forward? Well, the real challenge for them going forward is to uh, ensure that ESPN is on most, if not all, of the skinny bundles and virtual cable networks that are being created out in the marketplace so that they can still get paid – uh, no matter where uh, consumers go. So that's challenge number one, and they seem to be having some success there. The second issue, though, is um, they really need
need to articulate to investors that they have a strategy to take ESPN direct to consumers, to bypass the pay TV bundle, uh, much like uh, HBO, for example, goes to consumers with HBO now. You don't need a cable subscription. You can just go online. and it's, So it's an over-the-top service like a Netflix, uh, and this would be uh, – ESPN would be kind of the Netflix for sports. Now, ESPN has been reluctant to launch such, such a product because that would really – be a competitive threat to their existing partners, the cable companies and the satellite companies that carry ESPN and which pay, you know, over $6 per subscriber per month. So ESPN is really running a uh, kind of the, a, a tightrope because they don't want to cannibalize uh, their existing a cash flow stream coming from their existing distribution, but they recognize at the same time that they have to go direct to consumer to, to reach some of these younger consumers. That's where they're consuming their media, and ESPN needs to be there. Uh, so uh, talking about sort of the challenge of adapting to the new now, uh, we would also need to really look at Tribune, which also reported earnings this morning that trails uh, that trailed estimates. What's the problem with them? I mean, aren't they selling off Sinclair? They're trying yeah, to Tribune, show up their finances. Tribune is one of the big um, television broadcasting companies they they spun off their new newspapers so the tribune company is really the um, uh, the the um uh the TTV business. Sinclair just announced this week that Sinclair is going to buy Tribune at a, at a big, big price. So um, the TV stations, this is an odd-numbered year, which means there is no political advertising revenue. So all the TV station groups have very difficult comparisons. Um, so, But I think you know the Sinclair sees a tremendous amount of value in Tribune's very large market stations, um, which demand very high uh, uh, political advertising every other year uh, and which have you know very valuable TV spectrum. So Sinclair has putting together a group that with the uh, Tribune stations will reach 72% of the U.S. population, by far the biggest TV station group out there. Uh, so they think they can create a lot of value with that. So I think um, the, the results were a little d- disappointing today, but it doesn't change the fact that Tribune owns you know some of the best TV stations in the business. Well, but probably they're the best way to get an insight on the cord-cutting phenomenon and whether people really are uh, getting rid of their televisions in favor of uh, just going online. Do we get any better sense of what that is like? Yeah, so it's... It seems like in the industry, the uh, about you know two to three percent of the paid TV s- subscribers are leaving every year, um, and um, so that's 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 a problem. And and so for, if you're a cable network or, or broadcaster to a lesser extent, that is a big issue because you know that directly impacts your top line in, in terms of the uh, affiliate fees that you receive as revenue from the Comcast of the world and and the Directv's of the world. Um, so that's a big issue, and so what the cable networks are trying to do in particular is trying to make sure that they follow wherever their consumers are going. If they're going to a skinny bundle or if, or if they're going to Netflix or if they're going anywhere they're going, um, they need to make sure that, that their programming is on that offering uh, and that they get paid for it. Um, and secondarily, they need to think about, do I have a Netflix solution in my back pocket? Can I have? Do I have programming that's compelling enough to go direct to consumers that they will pay me you know, five, ten dollars a month to get my programming, whether it's Viacom programming or Time Warner programming, uh, or in the case of sports, ESPN. So it's really unclear as to how that's going to shake out. That's what's hurting. Um, that uncertainty is what's what's hurting TV stocks and media stocks in general, which have been weak over the past couple of weeks as we started to see the cord cutting concerns. You know, uh, resurface really with the Comcast earnings and the charter earnings in the Time Warner kick cable earnings. So a lot of those um, issues kind of re- resurfaced a little bit. So that's the challenge facing the media sector. Would ESPN be better off alone, both for Disney's sake and ESPN? 
Um, you know, there's a lot of people. It's funny because as recently as a couple of years ago, by far the most valuable part of the Walt Disney Company, the reason most investors owned it was because of ESPN. Now it's become a little bit of an albatross uh, around the neck of the company, particularly given the other two businesses are performing so, so well, the theme parks and, and the film uh, and the, t- uh, the movie studio. So, yeah, I think there's definitely been some calls recently that maybe you spin it out to be a standalone, standalone entity. There's not a lot of synergy between ESPN and the rest of the Walt Disney Company, which – you know, you know, may, may make that kind of reasonable. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much for joining us. Paul Sweeney is U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.